Welcome to the Like a Bigfoot podcast. I'm your host, Chris Ward. This week, we are sitting down chatting with my friend, Jay Lund. Um, I met Jay on the Desert Rats uh, stage race. Um, and man, let me tell you, this is a guy, this is an athlete who is just absolutely incredible. Um, during the race, he's so unbelievably focused and just like just like a wizard with sticking to his plan, you know, and just pushing through. Like, his face is as stoic as you possibly could imagine during a race. Uh, just an awesome dude. Great guy. Um, really had a blast hanging out at camp with him, listening to some of his stories, um, chatting with him. And, you know, this is one of the things that I'm really grateful for with this podcast is that I'm able to reconnect with people. Um, you know, because we could have done the race and had a great week and then said, yeah, see you later, man. Maybe we'll see you in the future, you know, um, and then never, never have we, you know, we could have never reconnected or anything like that. So it's a really cool, it's a really cool reason to get back into contact with someone that you find interesting or you find inspirational. So um, super grateful for that. Um, in this podcast, we talk about a couple things. We talk about the Yeti 100, which is a trail race in um, in Virginia. Um, it's I kind of go in like I'm starting to get nostalgic a bit for East Coast trail running. Um, there's just something about it. There's something about the mud, you know, because out here really, you know, it's been so dry. You're running on like hard dirt. Um, East Coast, you're running mud most of the time. So there's just something that I'm kind of missing about running in the humidity, running in the mud, like being covered in spider webs and bugs and all that stuff, you know. Um, and so we go into that a little bit. Uh, he, Jay, lives in Florida right now. So talking a little bit about Florida trail racing, which is sounds like a whole a whole nother ball game. Uh <laughs> especially if there's a lot of rain it's more of a mixture of like a uh swimming onto the trail <laughs> it sounds like um and then this is i remember jay talking about this at camp uh he started talking about scuba diving and i'm like oh i know i know scuba diving i've never done scuba diving but like I, i've heard of that you know um but then he starts going into this thing about how he was going scuba diving into these caves in Florida. And and I'm like, I've never heard of that. <laughs> um, so we talk quite a bit about underwater cave diving. And man, let me tell you. You ever hear about a sport where you're in your mind, you're like, yep, I will never in a million years do that sport because it sounds incredibly intense it sounds like something with if you have any sort of claustrophobia whatsoever like obviously you're freaking out um and through his when we started talking about this on the podcast i mean i'm sitting here and my heart rate rises just hearing some of these stories i start getting like sweat just hearing about these cave diving experiences and we talk about everything we talk about the thrills of it um and the potential dangers i mean the potential dangers for that sport have to be so real and on the forefront of your mind 24 7 
like throughout the whole entire dive that um yeah it's just i it's just something different you know it seems like it's out of all the adventure sports it has to be up there on you know like the top most dangerous sports out there so uh jay spent quite a quite a bit of time doing it so i thought it would be a really interesting conversation to to hear about it and it definitely was it was like beyond anything i expected so uh so yeah so thank you jay for coming on the show i really appreciated it you're an awesome dude i love listening to your stories um and hopefully you know at some point in the future we can definitely get another adventure in all right guys if this is your first like a bigfoot podcast or you're like 115th um that's cool <laughs> thanks thanks so much for supporting the show I really appreciate it. Um, <laughs> uh, you guys, if you if you want to find the rest of our episodes, you know, if there's if there's any other kind of adventures that really pique your interest, go back check out our archives. We have a whole lot of different episodes, um, all sorts of different adventures, um, everything from going to the South Pole climb mount everest a whole bunch of ultra running uh 200 mile races all this crazy stuff so so yeah um all right let's get the show started um this is like a bigfoot podcast number 115 with uh awesome ultra runner awesome adventurer jay lund man so i have jay lund on the podcast uh jay and i ran desert rats together this summer and we've been planning on talking for like at least a month and a half two months at this point and we just couldn't make it work man. so welcome dude welcome to the show thanks Chris, for having me on so it's great to be able to sit down finally to talk with you yeah man yeah well what uh what cup of coffee are you on this morning i am actually it's not a cup i'm on my second pot <laughs> I mean, you gotta keep in mind, man. You're talking about a guy that used to live in Seattle for a long time, and uh, I actually relied on coffee to get me through the day. And uh, it's just one of those habits that's kind of followed me down here to Florida. So, I mean, I usually start off in the morning with a pot of coffee, and I usually fire it back up again about mid-afternoon. Yeah, yeah. I know. I've been starting to do the afternoon coffee too, and I'm like, oh no, maybe I should cut that. <laughs> you know what? It's they say they say that it doesn't, or that it does hurt your sleep. But man, I tell you what, man, I can have a pot of coffee on four like no big deal at all. Dude, that's exactly, yesterday I was home with my kid and I made, because she was sick, so I had to come home early. I made a cup of coffee, I drank it, and I was so close to falling asleep. And I was like, I think I have a problem. <laughs> <laughs> the problem I've got drinking much coffee is having to pee all night long. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're asleep another story. Yeah. Well, I got to ask, man, so Scott, um, you know, Scott from Desert Routes also came with you from Florida, and he had his first coffee then. Is he still, is he addicted now? Yeah, you know what? He is a little bit, as far as I know. I haven't talked to Scott in a couple of weeks because he's gearing up for a couple of events himself. But uh, I got him out there drinking coffee, and, I, and the only way that he could really get it down was by, like, combining it with, like, an Atkins shake or an Insure or something like that to make it almost like a mocha. So that's why you saw him all the time. Uh you know, making a little foo-foo drink off to the side. 
<laughs> so, you know what? Whatever works for you works. We just get that caffeine into you. And as far as I know, he's still doing that. And that kid is going to have to be doing that because he's got a big 100 coming up next weekend up at uh, – and that's going to be his first 100 up there. So you better you better still be drinking the coffee. He's going to need it. Yeah, man. So, wait, what what race was that? Uh, he's actually going to be doing one called the uh, the No Business 100, and it's up uh, it's up in the Stearns, Kentucky area, uh, and it's a 100-mile uh, trail race up there. Uh, and it's actually a pretty good event because you do get some elevation, which is way different than what we get down here in Florida. So I tried to tag along with them, but coming two weeks off of the Yeti, uh, the legs just, they're like rubber. They're still like rubber right now, so I had to bail out on them. But yeah, man. As far as I know, he's still heading up there to do that. Yeah, well, I think for the Like a Bigfoot podcast, we I mean, we have to start with the Yeti 100. So how did that go? <laughs> the Yeti was awesome. So, I mean, it's uh, I don't know how much you know about the East Coast events out here, but the Yeti 100 and a couple of the other ones that are put on by Jason Green, and then you have um, uh, Sean Bland, who is part of the Run Bum guys. He does uh, he does his magic out here also. He's just now starting to kind of venture out your way. But this particular race was Jason's race, and it's been going on for a couple of years now, and it's his longest one uh, that he's got. And this thing sells out like within a matter of minutes once uh, once registration opens. So I think this year he had he broke ultra sign up within a couple of months. <laughs> um, the the cap on that race I think was 300, and he had well over 1500 inquiries. By the oh man! So they uh, they had to kind of go to like almost like a uh, waitlist type type situation and i got in off of that so um there was no way i was gonna i was gonna fail at uh at the 8100 given this this opportunity that i had so uh but virginia's cool i mean i know you've got uh, you've got some experience up there this was actually down in the southern part of virginia uh right on the virginia creeper trail okay really cool i'm not familiar with that area at all but uh getting up there and just kind of i mean it's so much freaking different than florida it's ridiculous i mean florida is like scrub and swamp it's just shit, and that's all that is. <laughs> you actually got trees, you got some nice trails, um, and it was great. I mean, it was a hell of an experience. So I got up there. I left here. I drove up there. It was about 13 hours for me to get up there, and uh, I drove up there, got in town, uh, met some of the people up there. I talked to Rachel, who you're obviously familiar with, seeing her again, and uh, then woke up on Friday morning and, um, and just started the race. Uh, and I'm finishing that thing in about 20, eh, about 25 hours and 45 minutes, something like wow. that. I was happy with, man. I tell you, what, I'm not one of these guys that's going to go out there and bust his hump to get on a podium. Uh, it's, just, it's just not my style. Um, so I'm just out there just to complete the thing. And uh, we have 30 hours to make that happen. And uh, I had plenty of time to get that done. Yeah. From my experience racing with you, like during the race itself, you seem incredibly focused on – I don't know. You just seem really focused and like you're, it's just like your expression doesn't change while you're running. You know what I mean? <laughs> something to that, man. It's like a poker face. Um, it's funny that you bring that up, Chris, because Rachel, um, and she's been on your podcast in a previous, uh, in a previous episode, but uh, uh, she ran a strong event uh, the entire way. And I knew that she started ahead of me and I thought, okay, one of these, one of these aid stations, one of these miles, I'm going to catch up to her. I didn't catch her until 50 miles in. Wow. And when that finally happened, she looked back to see who was coming up on her. And she's like, I recognize that face. And I'm like, what the hell is with this face? <laughs> I'm like, I'm just, 
all I'm doing is running. So, um, but yeah, she did well. Uh, I think she finished about an hour and a half behind me. Um, and we both had a great time. So yeah. Was, yeah. But no, Do you... I, I don't take these things seriously at all. It's just to get done. Yeah. Do you go in with a game plan or are you just like, I'm going to roll with the punches? Yeah, really, for something like this, you have to roll with the punches. Uh, because if you go in with like a solid game plan, uh, and the first hiccup that, that might occur, it's just going to throw everything off, whether it's, you know, from a mental state, it's going to stress you out, and it's just not worth it. So, yeah, there is a little bit of a foundation there as far as what I plan on doing, uh, you know, as far as like paces and stuff like that. Uh, I go in with a general eating plan or a fueling plan. But, man, I tell you what, dude. It doesn't take long at all for that just to get blown out of the water. Before you know it, you're out there improvising. And it's when you're improvising, when you're hallucinating about 2 o'clock in the morning, that problems can really occur. Um, so you kind of have to have an idea of what's going to happen that if you start hallucinating and uh, your light goes out, which actually happened to me this year, uh, what are you going to do? So that was kind of the idea that I had was, okay, don't what if this thing to death, death because – you'll drive yourself crazy, but have a general idea as far as what's going to happen. You know, if you get cold, if you get hungry, if you hurt yourself, that's it. And just go out there and just run the best race that you can. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, what did you do? Like, what were you hallucinating? First of all, um, I started seeing things out there. Like it is really weird because the Virginia creeper trail, it's not really that technical. Uh, there's a lot of old, uh, it's like gravel or, uh, I guess it's like coal deposits that fell off the train when the trains used to run those tracks that were out there. And there was a, there was a stretch that went for about an hour to an hour and a half. It was, it was at night, sometime probably early morning, when I kept on thinking I saw a bunch of manhole covers on the, uh, on the trail. And there was one time I thought I was going to go ahead and try to open a manhole cover and try to go down into there before I finally caught myself. Like, what the F are you thinking? <laughs> <laughs> you're just running on a trail is all you're doing. <laughs> hallucinations really crop up at night because <clears throat> when you're out there by yourself uh, and all you have is your light, you, what you see in just the beam of your light, uh, you start seeing stuff outside of that uh, of the light field. And it's that stuff that can really start driving you crazy, whether it's you think you see an animal or people or uh, whatever it might be. So yeah. That's what it is. But the cool thing is, is that, uh, and you should know this too, that you, know, you, you run enough of these types of events and you can start planning for, okay, you know that hallucination is probably going to be a factor sometime early morning or late evening. So this is the way you're going to deal with it. Okay, you know your feet are going to start hurting at mile 70 or whatever. This is what you're going to do about it. So you start putting those things in place uh, as far as, okay, this might happen. And if so, this is how I'm going to attack it. Yeah. Yeah, man. Dude, I so I've never ran a 100-miler. Um I've ran 50, you know, 55, 56, but never 100. So I've never gone into the night. So I really have not, I really don't have an idea of what that experience is like. I mean, do you, is that something you're going to, that you have on your radar to run up <sighs> Everyone's, everyone tells me they're all like, if you can run a 50, you can run a hundred. And in my mind, I'm like, you don't understand. That's double. That's double the amount of distance. <laughs> Yeah, but you know what? I've, I've run with you before, and when you run, you go balls to the wall, and you, you you're not going to run a hundred like that. I yeah, mean, it doesn't happen like that. You know that. I mean, it's the type of deal where you might start off like like for this race here, I did run walk the entire time. Okay. The way that I broke that down was, <clears throat> I'd go three minutes of a run, and when I say run, I 
I use that term loosely. <laughs> that run was like a 14 minute pace. Okay. So it's more like a slog is what it is. Uh, so I did that for three minutes and then I went into a power hike for two. Okay. So that five minute, that five minute chunk of time right there, there was three minute run, two minute walk. And I did that the entire time. Really? time so and that actually i've got like a little uh it's called like a gym boss and it's basically it's like an interval timer that i wear and just that thing going off every three minutes or every two minutes was one thing that kind of kept me going too yeah something else that was going on it was busyness that would just kind of get your mind back to where it needed to be so yeah. if you look at if you look at a 100 in terms of okay a run walk or a real slow run or a real fast walk whatever You'll get through it. I mean, I promise you. I've seen you run, man. The, 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 thing that might, the thing that might impact you is just an injury that just crops up from nowhere. And that's what happened to me for my first 100-mile attempt. Is I made it through 85 miles, but the last 45 miles of that, I had to kind of fashion some hiking poles out of tree uh, uh, branches uh, because my IT band basically shot on my right side, and because I overcompensated with my left side, my little calf was just crushed. So that happened on mile 40, and I managed to continue on for another 45 miles before I medically got dropped at an aid station. So, of a learning experience. So, but it is yeah. what it is. Yeah. Can you kind of like, I mean, what got you into this sport? Can you kind of go into your your history a little bit? There's not much history to talk about there. Um, I can go back quite a ways actually, and because it, it, it's all relevant. Um, I, uh, coming out of college, I mean, I grew up in Iowa. I told you that 18 years in Iowa. And the one thing I knew I wanted to do was get the hell out of Iowa. So, I mean, as soon as I turned 18, I went down to Arizona before I went to school at Arizona State. And uh, I was down there. That was only a five and a half year plan. So I was down there for about five and a half years. And pretty much the entire time was just spent, at least, at least the first three years, was just spent drinking and partying. So I kind of, my adult years were started that way. Uh, yeah. Once I graduated back in the early 90s, I really had nothing else to do, so I moved to Seattle. Uh, a buddy of mine was sailing, <laughs> was chartering sailboats around the world, and he asked me to join his crew with him. So I went up there. Um, I'm not going to get into it, but things didn't work out with him, so I ended up being up there for 13 years. And in the time that I moved from Phoenix to Seattle, I really had nothing else going on in my life, and I basically was – was going down a very dark hole uh, of alcoholism is what it was. Um, a couple of specific things happened to where I just basically said, hey, you know what, you got to get this. I got to turn it cold. And a buddy of mine was actually a recruiter for the military. And I talked to him and I said, listen, I said, um, this was when I was like 27, 28 years old. So I was a little bit older in my life. Directly answer your question, I hadn't started running yet. I was still just a freaking slug is all that I was. And he, uh, he's like, yeah, I can get you in the military. And I said, okay, I'll tell you what. I said, if I go in, I do not want to be a desk jockey. I said, make sure it's something that I am deployed at because I said, I've got to get the hell out of here because I'm going to die if I don't. So he's like, I got just a thing for you as long as you can test for it and get into it. So that's what I did. I passed all the special exams and what have you, the physical test, the mental test, and uh, the language aptitude battery and all that kinds of stuff. Got into it, spent time going through basic AIT, and like three, within three months of getting back from Fort Bragg AIT, I was in Bosnia. And this was back in 99? Yeah. Whatever. 
Long story short, 9-11 happens. Uh, my unit spun up for deployment. Uh, we were the first ones into Iraq back in 2003. Spent uh, about 14 months there. Um, and then when I got back, uh, my contract was basically over back in 2005. I put in my time and, and got out. So that left me with like a big hole of how the hell are you going to fill this lifestyle of where you're always balls to the wall um, in training, in deployments, uh, whatever it might be, living a military lifestyle. And now you're coming back to a civilian world where it's almost like going backwards. And it's like, you know what? The last thing I want to do is fall back into drinking alcohol to get me through. So I need to find something to do. So I tried a couple of different things. Um, one of them was learning how to sail. I did that for a couple of years. Um, learned how to fly, got my private pilot's certificate. I uh, did that for a little while, but then became too damn expensive. Yeah. Maintain that, so I stopped doing that. And then that's kind of where the, the the diving came into play, was it's like, okay, I got to find something else that's kind of like, you know, it gets the adrenaline flowing, and it's something that is not, it's not common. It's something that most people don't do. So I spent a couple of years going through the different, uh, the different diving uh, uh, courses and, and certificates. And finally, I got to where I was at a point. Uh, one thing that Florida is known for is like freaking meth heads and cave diving. Okay. So, uh, a couple of friends of mine were, were, were diving up in North Florida, which is where all the caves were at. And I'm like, you know what? That looks like something I want to do. And so I got a really good instructor. He taught me how to, how to do cave diving. And I did that for a couple of years and had a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, so that was the one thing that I could find that wasn't illegal, um, but was just dangerous enough to where, you know what, an ordinary day might lead to, to dying. Uh, because cave diving is really, really, really serious business. Yeah. Because if something happens down there, you can't just shoot to the surface and be safe. I mean, it's, you're done. And it's funny. Well, it's not funny. It's actually kind of more uh, 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 grotesque. But the instructor that I had, um, he was also a recovery diver up in um, up in the cave system of Florida, and he was always talking about. He didn't name by name, but he would throughout our course, he was providing real life examples of how, you know, this individual died, and we'd go ahead and do like an after action report on uh, uh, where the dive went wrong, and basically just ways to keep me from falling into that same trap. So I had a really good instructor. I had a lot of fun doing that. But then it got to a point to where I was just getting stupid. I was becoming complacent doing it. Um, they always teach you that one thing you don't want to do is solo cave dive uh, because if something happens, you have to run. You don't have nothing to rely on. Uh, but I found myself actually doing that. I found myself going into the cave system solo and being okay if I didn't make it back out. And I thought, you know what? This kind of a behavior is just, it's, 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 it's going down a dark place. Yeah. I did is I took a little bit of time off uh, from diving, and that's when I actually got into to running. And I started off with the usual thing, you know, the, the Spartans, the Tough Mudders. And this was probably about, I don't know, seven, six, seven, eight years ago, kind of when that thing was really big or bigger than what it was now. And uh, so I started off doing all those kinds of events. I traveled for some, went to uh, South Carolina and did the Spartan trifecta, and, you know, nothing ever satisfied me there either. Uh, a good friend of mine, she was a trail runner, and I couldn't talk her into doing obstacle course racing, but she talked me into running trails with her. And I'm like, she's are you freaking kidding me? You don't, you don't go through barbed wire or jump over fire or nothing? I'm like, it's kind of kind of lame. <laughs> <laughs> Give it a shot. 
Chris, let me just tell you something, man. I went out with her on a trail run. It wasn't even that far. It was maybe, I don't know, five, six miles, whatever the hell it was. And I'm like, Danielle, you got me scored away. I'm, I'm all in. I'm all freaking in. So I basically stopped doing the OCRs because they were just stupid at this point and just doing uh, more of the trail running. Um, and this was only probably three years ago that I really, wow. started, really started running. And um, have just absolutely gone balls balls deep into this whole venture since then love it absolutely yeah now it's uh kind of like you man you know it's like okay you do a half marathon you do a marathon whatever and now it's like you do stage races and i think you know where you know where that can go so yeah yeah man wow that's fascinating jay like i don't know okay so I got, I'm trying to wrap my head around this for myself because my first trail running experiences were out on the East coast too. They're in Virginia. And I'm, tr- the, when I think back to them, I look back and I'm like, those experiences were just so amazing running through the woods, getting hit in the face with spider webs, jumping over copperheads, like, and I'm just comparing them to out here. And like, I love running out in Colorado too. Don't get me wrong. And the views are just incredible, but there's something special about running through the woods um, in like Southeastern United States. Yeah. You know what? It's uh, that's kind of a big thing out here. Um, a couple of our podcasts that specifically are geared towards East coast trail running. And, you know, there's almost like a, um, it's not really mentioned, but it's, East Coast versus West Coast uh, trail running community, and no, ours is better. No, yours is better. No, mine's but whatever. Um, but it's totally different. It's totally yeah. Different. Just like you said, I mean, Virginia's different than freaking running in Colorado or Utah. I mean, I ran Bryce Canyon uh, in Zion a couple of years ago, and there's nothing like it out here in, uh, on the East Coast. Nothing. Yeah. Like running Yeti or running in Georgia, or especially running some of this garbage that we have down here in Florida. <laughs> like it out there in Colorado. So. <laughs> poison um it's not saying you have to do one or the other it's just different yeah Um, but it's cool i mean it's uh uh i have a lot a a great time coming out there uh to to run uh you know whether like the rats or uh working on something big now for next summer where i'll be out in arizona doing uh doing the grand canyon and uh, in zion again uh just because you you can't you don't get that out here yeah you you don't get you don't get the hoodoos and you don't get, you know, the red rock out here. And uh, so you got to travel for that. I've got no problem doing that. So, yeah. Yeah. But then on the other hand, you don't get the spider webs in the face that you get. And I loved that. I don't know what it was, but I would leave a trail run just in, you know, in our, in Danville, Virginia, like nowhere, nowhere crazy. There wasn't any amazing views or anything, but I would get back to my car and I would be like undoing my bandana and I would just be covered in sweat and bugs and like probably ticks you know because you guys got a lot of ticks out there and there's just something special about that too and because out here is i don't know it just hasn't felt the same i guess Dude, let me tell you something man we were you, know, you talk about the spiders and that's just kind of one of those things we take for granted out here i don't even think about it anymore I mean, i'm one of these idiots that's out there early morning running so i'm usually the first ones on whatever trail system or streets that we have out here and yeah, you're the ones, you're the pathfinder. You're the ones that find the freaking spider webs. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Biggest issue. Okay. Listen, I was out of Fort Bragg doing a land navigation course at night for part of my training for uh, for the military. And during the daytime, we did a dry run on this course. Um, and uh, they send you out there solo. And you're going, out, you're going through the woods, the Brooklyn line, or your district, or whatever it 
my feet. And you have what you call a spider stick. It's basically just like a you know you know an eight to ten inch long stick that you just use and you wave it in front of you <laughs> on the spider web to go from tree to tree. Okay, so during the daytime, you're seeing these freaking spiders. You're looking at this. That's a big one over there. Ooh, look at him over. There. That's a that's a bigger one. You talk about spiders that have a freaking abdomen the size of a, a Cheeto puff. Okay, it's a, yeah. Okay, so you know what they look like. Part of the training then is to take that experience and, 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 and use it at night. You go back out and do pretty much the same course on a night navigation course. The stipulation is that you can't use any lights at all because that would give away your position. The enemy would see you and you'd, you know, the chance of getting compromised would be better. So you're down, you're out there in a freaking North Carolina woods at night doing this damn land navigation course. And all of a sudden you have two guys, usually a guy in the back and a guy in the front because it's so thin there as far as how you're going to work your way through the trees and you're blindly just waving this damn stick in front of you because <laughs> somewhere in front of you this is damn spider webs okay we were out there a buddy and i were out there at night and i was the guy i was the point man i was the guy in the front and evidently my spider stick didn't do its job it missed the damn spider web and next thing i know chris is this damn web wraps around my face okay <laughs> i'm thinking back 12 hours prior to where I remember what the hell was sitting in that web beforehand, the size of the spiders. So I'm sitting there, this damn web now is on my face, and I know somewhere on me is the freaking spider that was in that web. <laughs> I look back at my buddy. I said, I don't give a shit if we get kicked out of the military. I said, turn your light on and find that freaking spider. I said, I know it's on me. <laughs> you can't do that. I said, you misunderstood me. I said, turn your light on now. He turns it on, Chris. I swear to God, there's this freaking spider sitting on my shoulder. That's got the freaking size of a golf ball. And I'm like, Bailey, get that thing off of me right now. <laughs> yeah, you talk about the spiders, man. That's definitely what you worry about. Um, it's not the spiders, it's the freaking snakes, like you mentioned. Uh, but the biggest issue that we have down here, the humidity doesn't, I mean, it, people talk about the bad humidity. Yeah, okay, that's a factor. I get it. Uh, the heat, okay, I get that too. Um, but really, man, the biggest issue that we've got down here as far as, 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 as it impacts me is that it's so flat here that most of our trails throughout the year are underwater. Okay, so it's like right now, the last six months, the trails that I usually run on, they're completely underwater. Wow. You can go out there and do what's called a water hike, which is where you can kind of wade yourself through the water, which a lot of people do, especially on the Florida Trail, or you can just go run in the streets. Um which is kind of what we're relegated to doing a lot of us because there's nothing else dry around here. So now the hurricane season is kind of, it's coming to an end at, uh, towards the end of November. Uh, it dries up a little bit down here. And now for the next six months, uh, the temps drop and the, the trails dry out. We'll be back out running pretty soon. That's awesome, man. Well, I know you were the one who told me the story and you have to remind me because I, I could not remember what this race was a few episodes ago, but I knew it was in Florida and I knew it was a trail race, but you basically were like, yeah, people were swimming during this like ultra marathon. Chris, I remember you talking about that. I forget who you were talking to. I'm like, Chris, you got that story so damn screwed up, man. <laughs> but does he have a feature I can call in and get him squirreled in? <laughs> I should add that. Dude, dude, you're close, man. You're close. Um, particular race that I was telling you about is a is an event it's, it's it's a 100k event down here called Lake to Ocean okay Lake to Ocean it takes place in June so it's right in the middle of the freaking rainy wet season and it's all by design they want to make you the most miserable I think it's possible by putting you in the you know, part of the summer 
a human part this summer, this part this summer. And so this race, it actually starts on the east side of Lake Okeechobee. And it winds its way through uh, uh, the central to eastern part of Florida and it ends. Uh, it's, it's almost exactly 100K or about 62, 63 miles later at Hobie, at Hobie Sound, which is over by Jupiter. Okay, so uh, you've got, I'm screwing this up. It's, uh, it's right around 20 hours to make that happen. So, you're, so it's pretty tight as far as the, uh, as far as the, uh, the time cutoffs go. Uh, I did this event two years ago and I finished in about 16 and a half hours. And the guy that was crewing me um, tried it this year. And this year was, it was equally as hot, uh, equally as humid, but it was a hell of a lot wetter this year. And when I tell you that this year, the people that were, that were running this event were actually swimming on the trails. You can get online and, and take a look at Lake to Ocean or on the Facebook page. And you can see the, the trails are probably about four or five feet uh, under, under the surface of the water. And so in order to find, you know, if, if you're following your trail markers out there, uh, you're swimming from one to the other. <laughs> I mean, it was absolutely insane. I, it was bad the year that I did it. It was even worse this year as far as how, how, um, uh, how wet it was out there. Uh, very few people made it through this year. A couple did, a couple squeezed by. Uh, they swam the spots uh, and they just, you know, they're just able to deal with the suck a little bit more than, than some of the others, some of the others were. But, um, you know, God, dude, if it wasn't like, if it wasn't like having to deal with that, uh, I remember I was at a an aid station waiting for my waiting for my runner to come in, and um, a guy came running up from from the trail system. He's like, "Hey, so I forget what her name was, but she's down there and she's cornered by an alligator." <laughs> what had happened is that she was sitting somewhere on the trail, and an alligator had swam out in front of her, and it wouldn't let her pass. So you know, she had to back up, go forward, couldn't go forward. And so a couple of other guys at the aid station had to run down there. And it's actually like illegal to throw rocks at the alligator, but because they were worried about her safety, they did what they had to do to get that alligator the hell out of the way so that she could pass on through. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, it's just, it's it, like I said, Florida running for you, man. So, <laughs> so. Dude, that's so, it's so funny because this is the ultra runner mindset is I know some people are going to be listening to that story like most normal people will listen to that story and be like, oh, that sounds horrible. I'm never doing that race. But there's going to be that the very few special people who listen to that and they're like, alligators, I'm in. Let's do it. Absolutely. Anyone who's listening, I, mean, I would definitely uh, suggest that if, if they manage to get in, it's kind of the good old boy network. Imagine Florida. Uh, you got to know somebody who knows somebody or you have to volunteer a crew uh, for this particular event. Uh, I think it's because of permitting issues is that they only allow a maximum of like 30 people in per year. And so, yeah, if somebody wants in, uh, they can make it happen. Um, get a hold of me and I can see what I can do for you, but it's a, it's a hell of an event. But like I said, it's, it's like 50, <coughs> excuse me, it's like 50 bucks to sign up. All you got to do is get your butt down here to Florida, be prepared for some serious conditions and have that. Now the cool thing, Chris, I know you're going to be excited about, you know, I've been trying to get, I haven't been that, I'd like to do a double uh, Desert Rats. And I kind of put that bug in Reed's ear about, hey, you know, why don't we do a double here? And he's kind of got that, he's got that eye that kind of looks at you like this. 
and that's the way it looked at me. And then that's where it stopped. And I thought, okay, you probably hit a nerve or something. So, but I thought that'd be cool. But what they did down here with this particular event is they do uh, a double of that. It's in January. So it's a little bit drier, but it's freaking freezing out now. So basically what you do is you cross one way and then you come back. And it's all self-supported. Su uh, self so wow. You can't have a pacer. You can't have a crew. Uh, they'll, they have water drops. Like, I don't know. It's like every so you're still dealing with that issue but um even fewer people get through that wow dude that's crazy man i i i mean when i'm thinking back to what you just explained about your history i'm like i understand how this appeals to you because i have to imagine you get out of serving overseas where it is this crazy adventure you know i mean coming from iowa for being in Iowa for 18 years and then going overseas, having this adventure with a group of people, you come back and you're kind of looking, I have to imagine you're looking for like community, you're looking for challenge, you're looking for these like extreme situations, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, and one thing that I know really impacted you quite a bit from Desert Rats was the, uh, I've heard people talk about, you know, the, the whole tribal mentality. Yeah. Um, for me, it's more like the closest the closest that the whole desert rats thing came for me as far as tying everybody together at the end of the night and make sure we all supported each other around each other or whatever, you know, cared for each other, basically. Uh, that's the brotherhood that a lot of people in the military really miss is the brotherhood. Um, of course, the brotherhood at desert rats is a little bit, it's quite a bit different, but it's, it's kind of the same. But, you know, when you've got bullets flying around you, that brotherhood tends to be a lot tighter. But the concept, yeah. is, the same. The concept is, you know what? Yeah, you know what? I can do a lot of things on my own, but at some point you meet that threshold to where I need a buddy of mine to help me go beyond this or for me to help him out. And that's where you really start to get interconnected with each other. And it's like I said, you know, you're bringing guys back now from the military. And don't get me wrong, I absolutely love the military. And, you know, I firmly believe that if you're physically and mentally capable of doing it, I, I would entice anybody to go. I didn't go in until I was 27 or 28 years old um, and absolutely dread the day that I got out. Um, but that being said, um, so many of us coming back uh, are absolutely just floored by what we're coming back into as far as that sense of brotherhood is missing here. And so now you see you have a lot of us going out to try to, to, try to find that in the civilian world and try to bring that back. And some guys succeed, some obviously don't. Uh, and we need, to, we need to seriously address uh, uh, the issues that there are with guys who can't succeed in bringing that, you know, you know, bringing that love, bringing that brotherhood back. Because these guys, you know, they, they give it a valiant effort. Um, and eventually, they're just like, you know what, I can't take this anymore. And they, yeah. You know, they just take care of their own business. Um, so you see a lot of us guys that are former vets, uh, combat vets or what have you, that are looking for a challenge that, you know, can, can bring that brotherhood, can bring that adrenaline, that dopamine rush back. And uh, it's events like Desert Rats or East Age Race or 100 Milers or, you know, the Ruck events or even the, the Spartan Hurricane, whatever it might be. Yeah. Uh, just something to get that going again. So. Yeah. With, with running, were you, a like, are you able to find a group of people to – run with and train with because the events are definitely one thing where you 
at least for me anyways, like I'm always really social during the events because it's really cool to find this like-minded group of people. But training wise, do you, do you train socially or you, cause you know, I train mostly by myself just cause of when I have to train, I guess. <laughs> I'm the guy that stands in my yard and doesn't get off my grass. Yeah. <laughs> my social abilities are basically like zero. Um, and that's fine. I mean, it, 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 it is what it is. Uh, but kind of like you, I mean, I train when I, when I can, uh, because of other commitments and jobs and things about my life right now. Most of my training time is actually early morning. So we're talking like midnight 30, zero 100, you know, whatever that it's, it's at that time, because that's when I can run. Uh, if I'm in a particular training block, I'll go ahead and knock out a run then, and then come back and run during the heat part of the day, just to get a little bit of heat training in also. Uh, but for the most part, though, it's it's definitely solo because of the timing. Um, but also, I don't mind the, the isolate, you know, the, as far as being isolated by yourself out there running. Uh, it doesn't bother me. You know, some people don't like it from a safety standpoint or, you know, they got to be social and always be talking. I'm not that. I'm not that. I go out there, I get the job done, and I get done. Um, and actually, in talking to some other people that were coming out of Yeti 100, um, one of the biggest issues that they had was finding out that, you know what, they do all these group runs all the time. And so they're always out running with friends or whatever. But then when they find themselves at, 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 at 3.30 in the morning and there's nobody else around them and it's dark out, yeah, it's like, crap. And all of a sudden now it's like they lose sense of what the hell is going on. And there was actually a couple that drops because of that. I don't think they got scared or, or, or just they become so discombobulated that they can't figure out what's going on. But uh, that could be a problem, I think, because if you're not yeah. by yourself and all of a sudden now you're forced out though out there. I've got friends who don't do trail running uh, by themselves because they're afraid they're going to fall and break an ankle or get bit by a snake or, you know, if it's a female runner because they might be harassed by male runners or, 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 or whatever it might be. So it's, they just don't run or they run on the roads or whatever. So, yeah. Yeah. But then if you go out there by yourself, you get that self-sufficiency. Um, and you know, if I did sprain my ankle, I would be able to survive and get myself out or at least be able to hang out until someone else comes down this trail. Yeah, man. And you know what? That's a cool thing about, uh, I mean, human beings are resilient. I mean, they will figure out a way to survive. There's a survival instinct from just about everybody. And some, you know, and some people, it's been, you know, kind of pushed aside or pushed out. Uh, but in most people, when it comes to surviving or making things happen, most people can figure out how to, how to make things happen. I mean, there was times when I was deployed and we did things. I'm like, where the hell did I ever learn how to do that at? I don't know, man, but it's up in here somewhere. Yeah. Out in certain situations. Um, yeah. So the, one of the things also, as far as, you know, you're talking about running solo or running in groups for me, one of the biggest things also is, um, is the whole mindfulness thing and kind of getting your, your mind in a certain, in a certain frame to where you, you don't pay attention to what's going on to your left or to your right. Or your left or your back. You're just paying attention to what's going on right now in the moment. I have a hard time doing that when I've got someone jibber jabbering in my ear or, or whatever. So, you know, if I have to say, Hey, you know, if someone catches me on a run and, and, and they're like, Hey, you know, it's, you know, they start talking or whatever. If I'm uncomfortable with that at the time, I'll just go ahead and just peel off and just say, I got to go to the bathroom and let them run ahead. And then I'll, uh, I'll fall back in behind them a little bit. And continue. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. That's, uh, that's just, 
No, definitely, man. So I guess I, I want to hear more about the cave diving stuff because I, it sounds, ter- it sounds terrifying to me. Like I can't even wrap my head around it. So when you're going down, well, can you kind of explain like, what's the process? Like you start off on the coast and then you swim. The cool thing, <laughs> the cool thing about Florida cave diving is, um, what's done in Florida is up North. Because of the way that the Florida landscape is, it's all like limestone up there. Uh, down South Florida, I don't know if it's clay or rock or whatever, but you're not going to find caves to dive in down here in the southern part of Florida. It's just two different worlds is what it is. So whenever I say cave diving in Florida, I'm referring to basically the north part of Florida. Cause that, that whole area is just conducive for this. Um, the cool thing about it is, is, is the diving is done. It's not done in the ocean around here. It's done in Florida springs okay so you know the springs basically bubble up from the sur- or from, from, from the ground and it bubbles up to the surface uh, and these springs aren't like the hot water springs that you guys have out west where you, know, you get in there naked and you sit in there in the 130 degree weather you know? it's not like that down here in Florida it's like uh, the temperature in the springs year-round no matter if it's the summertime the wintertime whatever the water temperature is always 72 degrees really What's going to impact you is, is what the air temperature is. So obviously, when you get yourself out of the spring and the air temperature is 95 degrees, you're getting out and it's still fairly warm, okay? But if you get out in the wintertime and the air temperature is 30 degrees, you're getting out of a 72-degree spring and 30-degree air temperature, you're going to freeze no matter what. Yeah. So the cave diving here is done in, I'll, I'll just call it 70-degree water, um, and it's done in the springs. So a lot of the springs that you see – uh, Genie Springs is a big one here in Florida. A lot of people come to Florida and just go to Genie Springs. And what it is, it's just like Genie Springs is, is a series of big holes is what it is. And you can look down and you get in there, you can, you, you can snorkel in there. In some cases, you can swim, you, you, you kayak or tube or whatever you want to do. But then you'll always see like a cave entrance uh, at the bottom. And that's where you need to have the specialized equipment and the knowledge to go down in there. So... Uh, a lot of the entry points are just a fissure in, in the rock, and so you're squeezing yourself through there uh, to get to, to get down in. Uh, and once you do, sometimes it'll open up, sometimes it doesn't. And you need to figure out some way of turning yourself around and coming back out or backing out. Um, but the one thing about cave diving is, if done right, everything is very well planned and coordinated. Uh, so you've got a really good idea of what the cave system is that you're going to be diving in, uh, how long you're going to be down for, because you. You cannot get down and run out of gas. That's yeah. just stupid. You cannot do that. Um, so all this stuff is planned for. So you know that once you start to dive and you get in there, you get in the you, you get in the uh, the cave. You know exactly how much time you have in there before you need to have uh, before you need to turn around and start the procedure and come back out. Um, some some caves or some springs here are are uh, uh, you know they push the water out. Or they, they suck the water in, uh, depending on how the, the makeup of the of the spring. So you kind of have to factor that into into your dive planning. Uh, because if all of a sudden now you go into a cave and the water is being pulled in like a vacuum cleaner, that's easy to get in there. You can get lodged way back into a cave. But now when you turn around to come back out, you're going against the flow. And if you didn't plan, it's like going into a headwind. If you didn't plan for a more strenuous uh, 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 exit, you're going to run out of gas before you get out. So all these little things have to be thought out before you actually set foot inside of a cave. I mean, uh, at least 
five times a year, you hear a story of somebody dying in a cave who was not certified or not qualified to go in there. Just because the human, they're curious, okay? Yeah. They get into a spring, they get into a swimming hole, whatever it might be, and they see a little cave. They're like, well, you know, I'm going to go down there and check things out. And other people, they know they're under the cave. They don't have a light. They don't have any air to breathe. And now they're stuck. Dude. <laughs> You're like, you just keep bringing up things. I mean, I could see how people get stuck because who would have, who would factor in all of these different things? You know, like you're talking about whether the current's going into the cave or out. And I was like, whoa, that wasn't even on my radar when thinking about how dangerous of a sport that must be. It's all that type of stuff, which is again, why I say, you know, it's, it's why I say it's, and it's actually a lot of these, a lot of the caves, um, I mean, there's, there's, there's no like diving police that will check for your certification. I mean, so it's basically, you know what? If you're certified, go dive it. If not, stay the hell out of there. Yeah. You get these guys, the weekend warriors, they go up to a place, they start off fishing, they have a couple of beers, they start diving, and now someone's family's being notified because their body is lodged with them. Wow. I mean, it's insane. But no, I did that for a couple of years, um, and that satisfied my, my need for adrenaline uh for quite some time uh because you get down there and it's really cool because you turn off your light which is something you don't want to do but because i always kicked it up a notch or two on on a stupid scale you turn off your light and all you would hear is just the bubbles coming out of your regulator uh you couldn't see anything an underwater cave is the darkest thing in the world so you're down there and all you hear is just the bubbles coming out of your regulator and you turn your light back on uh hopefully you still have the the guideline in uh, uh, in eyesight, and you just carry on the rest of the dive. Wow, man! I got to a point where I really started pushing it, and I'm like, you know what? This is this is gonna end bad. So, like I said, I came out of the cave one day and kind of flying. I'm just like, you know what? For now, I'm done. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Did you ever find yourself like? Was there ever any situation where? you got out and you're like, I was lucky this time. Yeah. The last, probably about the 10 or 15 dives I did were just like that because I kept on pushing further and further. Yeah. Doing things that I knew weren't supposed to happen, that they weren't supposed to be doing, I was doing. And this is the type of deal that, like I said, I do not want my parents to be notified that your son passed away in a cave because of something stupid that he was doing. Yeah. I, I, I didn't want to put that. I mean, I don't have a family. I don't have kids. I don't have a wife. So, that part I didn't have to worry about. I've got friends who have families and they're not as adventurous. Yeah. For obvious reasons. But I didn't have that. So that, that, that kind of gave me an implied permission to just push it one step further all the time. Oh, you know what? You succeeded. So next dive plan, let's go ahead and push back an extra 100 feet. And let's see what happens. Yeah. So it, it, it just got stupid, Chris. So, yeah. yeah. I think it's okay. I can deal with the spiders and stuff like that. <laughs> Yeah, man, for sure. What what are some common mistakes people make? I mean, you 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 mentioned earlier that uh, the guy that trained you went through basically all these scenarios that were very like morbid, but important for you to understand if you were going to take this on yourself. Yeah. Uh, a couple of things. It's you've got to have three working lights. Okay, a primary, a secondary, and a tertiary light uh, for cave diving. And sometimes people just, they just cut corners. They're like, you know what? 
they decide to do an impromptu cave dive. They start pulling their gear out, and they've got one light that works well, and they've got one light that kind of works a little bit. The battery's only half charged or whatever. So from an equipment standpoint, they don't have the right equipment. That's a big issue right there is that if you're going to cave dive, it's pretty equipment intensive. Okay, you've got you got you got reels, you got you got spools, uh, you got backup regulators, uh, you got a backup computer, you got backup lights, uh, all this stuff. It's very redundant, and people just get complacent, they get lazy, and they just go ahead and just throw a tank on their back and they jump into the they jump into the water and yeah, those in trouble. Um, another common issue that that leads to that leads to problems is running out of gas. Okay, running out of nitrox, the trimix, or, 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 or the air that you're going to breathe. Um, again, you really, it's, it, it's mandatory, I'll just put it that way, it's mandatory that you have an idea of a turnaround point in a cave, so you know that you can go this far in, and your gas, your gas, or, or your, your gauge, uh, your pressure gauge, should say this much, and you're going to turn on, come back out, and your pressure gauge should say this much. So basically what it, what it is, uh, not to bore you with the details, cave diving, you use one-third of, of your breathable gas to go into the cave. Use the second third to come back out. So you always have a third of your gas in reserve. That makes sense. Never be an issue at all uh, with running out of gas. As people do. Yeah. Uh, probably the third biggest problem that people have is they lose sight of the line. So all these caves you'll see they have what's called a gold line. And the gold line is basically put in right inside the entry point of the cave. And uh, somehow you should have some kind of a contact with that guideline because it just takes a second like that uh, for the light to go out or for you to turn your head. And all of a sudden now you can't find your line. And you'll be amazed at how fast it happens to where you can't find your line. And now all of a sudden you're lost inside this cave. You got plenty of gas, you got plenty of light, but you got no idea, you got no idea where the hell the out is. And for some reason, most people uh, inherently go further into a cave thinking that they're coming out. Wow. So if you get down there and you lose contact with that, with, with, with that guideline, um, there's certain protocol that you're taught to find that guideline again, whether that's just, you know, you just blanked out for a second you still have light and you can't find it, or whether you had a, a catastrophic light failure, and now you're trying to fight your guideline in the dark. Um, and you go through all these procedures in training, and it is the most nerve-wracking uh, situation you can imagine. Yeah. Doctor has you go through a catastrophic failure as far as everything just goes tits up, and you got to find your way out. Dude, I'm having like my heart rate has increased just listening to that. I don't know, man. I think claustrophobia would get me. I can't even like crawl into a cave. Like, you know, even if it, if I know you have to crawl like five feet and then it opens up, that freaks me out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I know, like, you know, I'll, we, we'll go hiking with the kids and stuff, and there's an area in Rifle, Colorado, with all these caves and stuff. And they're, like, well-marked caves that people go into all the time. It's not, like, anything crazy. But even that, I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, man, because I remember 
uh, again, when I was down in Zion, uh, in parts of Arizona, uh, and actually down in the St. George's, Utah area also, a uh, lot of caves up in those mountains out there. And the times that we would just go get lost on the trails and find a cave and just start going walking around in that cave, it was so freaking cool. Man. That is cool. There's really not much of that here, and I so miss that. So yeah, yeah I, I am a little. Uh, uh, I do miss the West Coast um, in that aspect. Uh, like I said, I grew up out there. I went to school for five years in Arizona, and I lived for 13 years in in Washington State. So I get it. I get the whole West Coast vibe. I like it. I love it. I try to get out there a couple times a year uh, to have fun. Yeah. Um, and it's just it's just so different. It's yeah, just, man. Because you, you guys have you guys have some special places out there. That's what makes the the United States cool, though. I mean, you know, we talked earlier about East Coast trails versus West Coast, and then being different, it's you got this wonderful kind of variety that you can choose to adventure in. And and like, I didn't even know underwater cave scuba diving was a thing until you started talking about it at Desert Rats. I was like, what? So like, just the various the various ways people have adventures is just fascinating. And I mean, another cool thing about the whole the whole cave diving thing is that, you know, when you think about diving, so much of it is done off of, like, diving. It's like the cattle cars, okay? You know what? It's, uh, they pile 15 people into a 15-passenger dive barge. And so you got crap every – I mean, you, you got people with their butt in your face and they, you're getting swapped out. I mean, it's just it, – it's a freaking mess. And then they tell you to dive, 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 and it's just like a freaking – just a mad rush for the water. You got gear flying everywhere. You got people jumping on each other. And – then you got to be back at a certain time. So that those types of dives are dictated by outside factors, whether it's a dive master, the boat captain, uh, 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 the dive company, whatever. The cool thing about cave diving, man, is it's you come and go as you want. I mean, you go up to a spring and they usually have like a dive platform and you wake up. You've probably been drinking the night before you wake up and it's like, you know what? I mean, we're supposed to be at 830. Let's sleep in for another hour. And so you do that and you, and you, you get to the dive location, you don your gear, and you jump in the water. You come back out. It's like, all right, yeah, we'll just chill out here for a little. So there's no pressure at all. To keep yeah. So that kind of adds to the whole feel about that. Um, but yeah, it is. It is cool. It is cool. Have you ever have you ever dove before? No. Um, no, we went to me and my dad visited this uh, South Pacific island where there's a whole bunch of diving. It's uh, Vanuatu. I mean, it's an island system. I don't know if you ever heard of it, but um, there's all sorts of craziness there. And, you know, I've never done it. So I wasn't about to <laughs> about to start <laughs> that time. <laughs> yeah, man. Sweet. Well, hey, so, you know, if people are listening to this and they're inspired by you, um, like I am, I'm super inspired by you and the adventures uh, you've taken on over the past few years. Um, like, do you, do you have any leaving advice for them? Um, not to steal a phrase from Nike, but just do it. Yeah. Just go out there and do it. Make it happen. I mean, it's the type of deal where, where life is just, it's cliche. Life is just so short, but it's so true. I mean, um, I lost my wife. You and I briefly discussed this a little bit uh, running Desert Rats. Um, you know, a couple of the, the harsh, the harsh times in our past. And one thing I made mention about to you was that you know, I lost my wife to cancer back in 2000 and God, I should know, 2006. Yeah. Yeah, she was young, but in watching her go through that entire awful situation, 
you really start to appreciate life a whole lot more. And so much of, especially Western society, is built on, you know what, I'm going to work for 40 years, retire at 62 or 65 or 67, and spend the rest of my years in retirement. Some people don't make it that far. My yeah. wife died when she was like 43 or whatever the hell it was. She didn't make it that far. A lot of people don't. Or if you do make it that far, you're broke. You can't move. You're sick. Uh, you know, whatever it might be. So if you can do it, make it happen. Do it. I mean, Chris, you've done some crazy crap. I watch you on Instagram and, and, and follow your podcast. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, just make it happen, people. Yeah, definitely, man. There's no better time than right now, you know? So I'm going back to Desert Rats. <laughs> um, yeah, man, I got done that week and Reed gave, you know, the, I don't know. It just, I left the week feeling so good. And then I was peer pressured by Phil. Um, Cause Phil's like, I'm already in. And I'm like, damn it, Phil. <laughs> and uh, we convinced Paul, uh, Mickey is going back to So um it was just kind of this big peer pressure kind of deal, but dude, I loved it so much. Um, and I guess to put like an objective goal, kind of, I didn't know the under 30 hour thing was a, a thing. And until the day before the marathon, I was like, there's no way I can run a marathon in like four hours to end this thing. Um, so I missed it by 40 minutes. So now I'm kind of like, well, I could surely cut 40 minutes off that time. You're strange. You were a man on a mission out there, man. You were a strong freaking runner out there. So I remember the first time I came up on you and Paul, and you guys were both, you guys were in the pain cave, both of you. <laughs> yeah. You guys were just freaking strong as hell, man. So you're shaving off 40, 45 minutes. There's no doubt in my mind you'll be able to make that happen easy. Yeah, yeah. I hope so, man. I think, yeah, the biggest thing that I am already concerned about, and I'm trying not to even think about it. Like, I'm kind of relaxing for the next few months and by relaxing i mean like i'm still working out i'm still running but it's kind of not as purposeful it's kind of without a purpose just to do it just to have fun um but i am concerned with the heat because i know reed kept saying like this is only a hot year and i'm like man it got up to like a hundred and something it gets hotter no, it really didn't. No, I was kind of surprised. Um, I think had I known that it got like up to like above 110 at certain points, I think that would have affected me. But dude, I like to go into anything like ignorance is bliss a little bit where I'm like, I don't even I don't have a watch with what mile I'm on. I don't like to know that because I'm just like, I just want to keep going and eventually show up. And then temperature-wise, like, I don't want to know that either, I guess. Yeah, I mean, you guys might luck out with the weather. Who knows, man? But, yeah, I think we we definitely uh, lucked out this year. Yeah. Yeah, well, dude, I mean, I know a little bit about what you want to plan to do next year in Arizona and, and Utah, and it sounds awesome. So I'm looking – we'll have to come back on the podcast and, and tell me all about it. Too bad. I mean, if you guys can make it happen out there, it's not going to be the exact same time as Desert Rats, so keep that in mind. I will. I definitely, yeah, I'll consider it. Is it going to be before or after? Uh, it's probably going to be within the first two weeks of June, so I can't remember when Desert Rats is. So it's like right before. Desert Rats is like smack dab in the middle of June, so. Yeah, 
that because uh, we, I've got a couple of teachers like yourself that, that are waiting for school to end uh, before they, you know, before they're free to go out there. So yeah. it's, kind of, it's kind of why the design, I mean, it, it, it's not to keep your listener like, you know, oh my God, what's going on? It's no big deal. It's basically a rim to rim to rim is what it is. Yeah. Driving up to uh, Zion and doing at least the West Rim Trail uh, to include Angel's Landing. Um, and Rachel just sent me a an article about doing the entire Zion Traverse, which is 50 miles. And I looked there, I'm like, what the hell, are you crazy? <laughs> I think you guys should do it. <laughs> There's a small group of us right now that have, that, that 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 are looking at doing it. Uh, would love to have you guys come out too, and then you guys just use that as a training run and do your desert rats thing. Yeah, man, I'll have to. I'll keep you updated for sure. But but sweet man, well Jay, thank you for coming on the show. Like I said, we gotta do this again sometime. And I don't know if you're ever through Denver, but let me know if you are. Uh, every once in a while, I'll make it out there for an event. So okay. Out there for an event, if so. I'll Sweet man, we can climb some mountains and stuff. I, I tried doing that, so I tried my first fourteener attempt. On, uh, is it Grace? Is it Grace? Yeah. Um, I'm not used to snow. Dude, snow altitude, that stuff will just like I have like last weekend. I I climbed like a twelve thousand foot one. Once I get to about twelve thousand feet, like that altitude just kicks my butt. Where uh, we realized that we weren't gonna make it up, so we just sat there on a, on a, on a little uh, outcropping of rocks. And a buddy of mine had a, a, a can of Dinty, a Dinty Moore stew, and we're like, you know what? Yeah, there's a summit right there. We ain't gonna make it this time around because he had kind of started having some bad weather rolling in. Yeah. We're just gonna sit here on this rock and we're gonna enjoy this freaking stew. <laughs> I tell you what, Chris, it's it's kind of things like that when things don't quite go according to the plan, to where it's like. That is more memorable, I think, than if we would have made it to the summit. Yep. Like, you know what? We didn't make it this time, but it definitely gives us something to look forward to next time. And so we're already planning on that. So, yeah. Find out things work out sometimes. That's cool. It also is like the acceptance of like you're able to accept, like, it's not my day today. And I think that's that can be powerful too. Well, it's actually important because sometimes when you've got nothing but the goal in your mind, that's what gets you in trouble. So, flight training and dive training is that you know when you have a goal that doesn't mean you have to achieve that you know don't be afraid to turn around and say okay what well, we didn't meet the objective today let's talk about it let's rethink this and let's try it again another day yeah that rocks man well jay thank you for coming on the show dude uh we'll get we'll ke- catch back up with you at some point Sounds good brother have a good one chris <laughs> all right see ya huge thanks to jay thank you man thank you for coming on the show um you're just an incredible, incredible person. You're, you're really inspiring to me. Like I really appreciate hearing your stories and hearing about all the adventures that you've gone on. Um, you know, it's something, and even like you know, taking on a hundred mile race to me is is still something. I know I've talked to a lot of people who have done it, but I've never attempted it and. And just being able to endure that and to push through that. I I think I read something the other day. I can't remember what it said. (laughs) But (laughs) so I was just thinking to myself, like, well, why are you bringing it up, dude? Um, It was something about, like, how a 50-miler will really teach you what 
your body can handle, but a hundred miler will like reset your mind, um, which I thought was really interesting. Um, so yeah, so thanks for coming on the show. Uh, hope you guys enjoyed the show. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Remember to check out the rest of our episodes. Um, you can find it wherever you hear podcasts or at our website, like the bigfoot.com. Um, I wanted to mention this. I started reading a book lately, and I have a book recommendation today. It's called Endure, and it's uh, The Mind, Body, and the Curiously Elastic Limits of Human Performance. Um, if you are in any sort of endurance event, I would highly recommend this book. Uh, it's written by Alex Hutchinson, and basically he goes into – he goes into a lot of the science behind endurance, but also the psychology um, and the history of endurance, too. I mean, it's just it honestly is probably one of the better books I've read about uh, about endurance racing. Um, and I'm not all the way through it yet. One of the parts that I'm that I'm into right now is basically about the brain and about the theories behind how the brain play into what your body can take um because basically his idea is you know if we were pushing 100 percent to the max of our bodies these elite marathon runners would get to the end of the race and just drop dead because like physiology or physiologically that was the biggest word i've ever said on the podcast physiologically they wouldn't the body you know, you push to the absolute 100% limit, you know, and if you were pushing to the absolute 100% limit, your body just wouldn't be able to take it anymore because you've done everything you possibly can. Um, and the idea is that the brain, to a certain extent, holds you back in a, as like a safety, you know, like a, like a safety, um, oh man, there's a word I'm looking for. The brain holds you back as kind of like a like a fail safe, right? That's the word I'm looking for. <laughs> but the brain holds you back as a fail safe as a way of like making sure you don't push to your, you know, your body's absolute limit, which is good because otherwise we'd all finish these marathon races and all these other things and we wouldn't wouldn't be able to get any more oxygen or our heart would have pushed as hard as we possibly could and all that stuff. And, like, you'd never see that during a race. And so, basically, the idea is, like, hey, you, you know, you want to make your brain be able to push harder than you think. You obviously don't want to push to your absolute limit, but you want to make your brain there, – there has to be ways to make your brain push a little bit harder and longer um, than – the signals that your body is sending it right like when your body's like man i'm tired oh we should just stop and eat donuts or something right but really you could probably achieve so much more than you possibly could think um just by by training your brain i guess i don't know i'll figure out more of this as i continue reading the book um i just thought that was a really interesting idea um, something to think about, you know, during your next run, training run, race, something like that. Cause, uh, for me right now, uh, I'm on my fall break. This is early in the morning on my fall break. I'm sitting next to a big pot of coffee. Um, but I'm about to, to go on of 
probably my longest run in in a few weeks or a few months uh ever since well not a few months ever since the grand traverse i haven't really gone on a long run i'm about to do that today uh, i'm gonna drive up to a place called golden gate canyon state park do just like a you know like a half marathon ish run um with really the purpose of just enjoying it like i'm not going to push it but i want to enjoy the views enjoy a new trail that i haven't explored before um so that's kind of my plan so all right guys we'll get back at you next week um i have next week's already recorded so let me give you a little preview um it is with this really cool athlete slash he owns and created this gear company called orange mud um his name is josh sprague um so he was an adventure racer he does all sorts of like mountain bike races and um gravel races and uh you know is just a just another he's just another adventure right like he's someone who who takes on these awesome things um and before that podcast comes out if you want he has a really fantastic podcast himself called Orange Mud Adventure Channel, and uh, I would suggest listening to that. That's what I'm going to put on my iPod today, iPod, my iPhone, whatever, my phone today while I'm, while I'm going for my run. So, all right, guys, we'll get back at you next week. Thanks again, Jay, and we'll see you around.